Good morning, Crosspoint. My name is Jody Heider, for those of you that don't know me. Uh, my family and I have been coming to Crosspoint since 2017. Uh, today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jody. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up to that passage. Jesus was asked by an expert in the Old Testament law which command in the law was the greatest. And the expert was trying to entrap Jesus because there are over 600 different commands in the law. And so to the question of Jesus, which command is the greatest, he replied to the expert, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. That's from Matthew 22. We call that the great commandment. That for the follower of Jesus, our lives are ordered around the great commandment. Our loves are reordered, if you will, around loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. We are all born with a nature that loves sin and loves ourselves. But when we are born again in Christ, when we experience rebirth, we are given a new heart, a new spirit is put within us that now desires to love the Lord and make much of Jesus Christ. As we grow in loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we grow in loving those around us. So practically speaking, how do we shine a light on the Lord that we love and live for? How do we live in a way that shows the Lord Jesus is the most valuable, precious, and utmost priority to us? How do we reflect Him to both unbelievers and believers around us? How do we live in a way that reveals the Lord Jesus is a weighty presence in our life, not burdensome, but bears weight on our hearts and minds, and in doing so, that weight shapes us. It transforms us. Brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to shine a light on the Lord in all of our lives. Glorifying God doesn't just occur in this gathering. It doesn't just occur in a church building. It occurs, we have opportunity in all of life, including in how we love our neighbor and love those around us. See, the Christ-following life is distinctly other-oriented. 
And we see that in the great commandment. It's about loving the Lord, other-oriented. It's about loving our neighbor and others around us. It's other-oriented. In today's passage, the Apostle Paul, through the breathed-out Word of God, is helping us get a picture of what it looks like to glorify God and how we love our neighbor, how we set aside even our own liberties and freedoms in Christ in certain situations so that we might love others like Jesus. The subject of idolatry is here in chapter 10. Dave will get into that more next week. The Corinthian church is a group of reborn saints in Christ who are growing in the Lord. They've now been commissioned by Jesus to go and make disciples of Jesus to live on mission for him because saved people are sent people. And they're living on mission in the context of a city and culture that is prone to idolatry. Timothy Keller defines idolatry as an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God and anything that you seek to give to give you only what God ultimately can give you. So the Corinthians are prayerfully seeking to make disciples of Jesus in the context of a culture just like ours that is worshiping anything but the Lord our God. Their hearts are captivated by the things of this earth. The people they're seeking to reach are turning to created things to try to give them only what ultimately can be found in Jesus. Things like life, peace, joy, rest. And historically, believers in the midst of a world that is idolatrous, believers drift toward one of two extremes, neither of which glorifies the Lord. The big words for these extremes are sectarianism and syncretism. Sectarianism meaning you section yourself off. You separate. You separate from the world. You withdraw. You retreat. You keep to yourself. These become a holy huddle, if you will. And they often pick up legalistic tendencies. Putting a lot of man-made rules upon the holy huddle in an effort to bring about holiness of the human heart. External means trying to bring about internal change, with which the entire Old Testament says that's impossible. We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ. We need grace. We need heart transformation. The other extreme is syncretism, meaning these believers see a world worshiping idols and they start becoming like the world. Instead of standing out from the patterns of idolatry, they start following and adopting those patterns. And this group then becomes licentious in their way of life, meaning they see the grace of God as license to continue in sin rather than the very motivation to turn away from it because that's not how we've been called to live as new creations in Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we live on mission with our Lord Jesus who is with us in mission, empowering us for mission, we must not separate from the world nor become like it. And this passage will be a timely reminder for us in that because the Corinthian church had both types of people, just like we do, just like any local church does, people prone to either of those extremes. So may the Lord help us grow in glorifying God and how we love our neighbor and how we seek to prayerfully reach that neighbor with the gospel. Verses 23 and 24, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. In chapter 6, Paul quoted this phrase, everything is permissible as well. 
which was a phrase taken from the culture of the pagan idolatrous city that the church dwelled in. A phrase which sadly the Christ followers in the church had then begun to adopt as their own, twisting and distorting it to justify their own sinful conduct and immorality. Everything is permissible. In chapter 6, Paul countered with, I won't be mastered by anything. It was about his own, his own propensity to, to reject idolatry, his own desire to not be mastered by anything. But this time, Paul countered with two responses. Not everything is beneficial and not everything builds up. This time around, Paul wants the Corinthians to not distort this phrase to justify not loving their neighbor well. Everything is permissible. There is truth to that statement, but not the whole truth. Believers are free in Christ. The Christ follower has been liberated from, set free from bondage. The Exodus freedom story in the Old Testament points forward to our story as New Covenant believers. We are no longer under the law of Moses, so, for example, we're not restricted by dietary laws, which will come up in today's passage. But the Gentile believers in Corinth didn't first become Jews or follow the law of Moses to please the Lord. Jesus fulfilled the law per perfectly, and so we are saved by grace alone, not by works. We are saved through faith in Christ because His work, Jesus' work, was complete. It was sufficient. So the Corinthians were right that they were freeing Christ, and they were not bound by legalistic religion, and yet they're twisting that truth and using it, in this case, to justify their lack of loving their neighbor. In a, in a sense, the Corinthians were asking, how much can I get away with and still be a Christian? But the right questions we should be asking ourselves as believers is, how does the Lord Jesus call me to live in a way that shines a bright light upon Him and not us? How does my Savior call me to live and love my neighbor in a way that reveals my heart's focus is on the Lord and not on myself. Paul writes in Romans 6, 1 and 2, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not, he responds. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 15, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not, Paul responds. The grace of God is not licensed to continue in sin. It's the very reason we can turn from sin and live in a new way. So Paul gives these two responses to the Corinthians to give them the whole truth, not just half the truth. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up those around us. Not everything is beneficial for you nor your neighbor. So Paul is saying, yes, you're free in Christ, but don't think you're still not potentially faced with the temptation to turn back toward the slavery found in Egypt, whether that be slavery of legalistic religion or slavery of license and us just living for ourselves we serve only one master his name is jesus and he is infinitely good for us and for us in every way if we ever doubt that we look at the cross see as believers in order to walk in god glorifying and wise christian freedom we must remind our hearts and minds of the gospel and in the gospel we see the extravagant love of Jesus displayed toward us who were once his enemies. So yes, you and I are free in Christ. But we are to live in a way that seeks the benefit and the building up of those around us. 
And then Paul lays out a couple examples for the Corinthians and how they can live free in Christ in the midst of an idolatrous culture. And at the same time, seek the benefit and the good of others. And while these examples will feel extremely foreign to us, there are principles we can learn which translate to any culture, any context, any point in history. Verses 25 and 26, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So let's talk the meat market and this context in which Paul is writing. The city of Corinth is deep in Gentile country, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem in the center of the Jewish faith. And so what you found in the market was that some of the meat available for purchase had been first used in idle sacrifice before hitting the market. The animal had been slaughtered, the meat had, laid, had been laid upon an altar of some small g false god. People had bowed down in worship to this false god and then after offering the meat to this idol, it had been taken to the market and was now available for purchase. Those in Corinth from a Jewish background would have avoided markets such as these because the Lord had strict laws in the Old Testament about eating unclean foods. And it wasn't like the food was labeled. It wasn't, hey, this is certified bale food, or hey, this is uh, USDA or Corinth DA uh, Aphrodite cert certified, or this some other temple god. You didn't know the background of the meat when you walked up to the counter. And into this idolatrous situation, Paul is giving instructions to believers in how to navigate this. Because those from a background in the law or those from some Greek background, which might have given, which in their former life might have given their attention, their affections to some false god, both of those groups of people would be hesitant to walk up to the butcher, thinking, do I have the freedom in Christ to eat anything they serve? What am I supposed to do with this, Paul, depending on my background? And Paul then tells them, don't, we, don't go in asking the butcher where the meat came from. William Barclay said, don't ask fussy questions. Don't ask fussy questions. Don't go up to the counter asking what transpired before it got to the market. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. He's quoting Psalm 24, 1. And verse 2 in Psalm 24 continues with, For he, the Lord, laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Paul's reminding them that everything, everything belongs to the Lord. He is creator. He owns it all. He spoke it into existence. He established the earth and all that is in it, including animals. And these false gods, these idols, they don't own a thing. They haven't created a thing. They are dead, powerless, lifeless. In Acts 10, when the Lord calls Peter from a Jewish background to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, the Lord tells him in a, vi in a vision that what the Lord has made, such as animals, is clean. So Peter, you're free to eat any sort of meat because the Lord created the meat. And we're not made clean or unclean by external things, such as food. We are made clean through faith in Christ. So as it relates to the good gift of meat, Paul's instructing the believers, don't ask fussy questions. Simply take it, go home, start the fire, eat it for the glory of God. 
because you're free in him. And he is Lord over all, including all idols. And then Paul shifts to the scenario of a dinner party. So this time, you're not taking the meat home to enjoy it in private, but you've, invi- you've been invited to an unbeliever's house. Now what? How do you glorify God in loving your neighbor in this kind of context? Verses 27 through 30. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's, for this is, or for, for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? Notice, first of all, that Paul says, if you want to go, then go. Then go. Paul's not telling a believer not to go to an unbeliever's house. In the Corinthian church, you've got new believers who are on mission toward family and friends and co-workers, living on mission to make disciples of Jesus, and they still have people providentially placed into their life that they're on mission toward. And Paul's saying, don't retreat from that, but engage in that. If you want to go to their house, then go to their house. Sometimes wisdom says don't go. Sometimes wisdom says go. Be a reflection of Christ. So Paul's first instruction is eat what is set before you without raising questions. Maybe that's something you use around the dinner table if you have young children. Eat without raising questions. Prepare for the mission field, young child. But remember, no matter if the meat was used in in false worship or not, ultimately it belongs to the one true God. So don't be... Paul's saying, don't be a self-righteous legalist asking fussy questions about the resume of the meat. Just take it, eat it, enjoy it for the glory of God. And then Paul gives further instruction. What if someone says to you, knowing that you're one of these new believers, these new followers of Jesus in the city, and they say to you, hey, this food that we're passing around family style was from last week's sacrifice to Thanatos, the Greek god of death. You want some? Paul says, do not eat it. Out of consideration. Why? Out of consideration for the person who told you. For that person's conscience. Not because you're not free to eat it, but because you're more concerned with loving that person than loving yourself or exercising your rights in that moment. We don't know who the someone is. I think that's for a purpose. Because Paul's counsel would apply to whoever that someone is, whether they're a follower of Jesus yet or not. So it could be someone, an unbeliever who's testing you, seeing, what are you going to do in this situation? Are you going to avoid eating? Are you going to take and eat, knowing the background? And, And so Paul is encouraging them, don't give any impression here. You decline eating because you don't want to give any impression that their idolatrous worship, you're, you're putting a rubber stamp on that or you're dismissing it as no big deal. It also could be a weak brother or sister in Christ. Weak meaning a believer who's prone to fall into sin or some old pattern through watching a believer's way of life. So this person leans over to you and says, uh, hey, this, this food is from a sacrifice. And maybe in their old creation life, Before they trusted in Christ, this person had given their life and attention to this idol. 
they had bowed down to that altar down the street, thinking that 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 false god was going to give them something that they were after. And so in that moment, if you saddle up to that slab of ribs, it could cause that person who's asking you that, that question to stumble and trip back into old creation life. Your rightful exercise of freedom in Christ has the potential to cause a weak brother or sister in Christ to then follow that example and sin. Paul's saying you restrict your freedom in Christ out of love for the other, for the benefit and the building up of the other. Paul's not saying that the strong or knowledgeable believer, the one who's grounded in the gospel, growing and maturing in the faith, needs to alter their convictions. He is calling the grounded and growing believer to alter their behavior, their actions, their way of life in the presence of the other person. That's not being hypocritical. That's simply loving the other person well, understanding the context, and considering that person's conscience more important than your own. Now, in a situation such as this, if we return to the ideas of either a legalist or a licentious person, either one of those extremes bristle at this idea of deferring to the other. The legalist, the rule-following person, says, I will bind the other person's conscience, meaning I will set the rules and everyone else will follow them because I am a great rule creator and rule follower. But at the end, the legalist says, but don't tell me what to do. But don't tell me what to do. I'll tell you what to do. But don't tell me what to do because I am the rule creator and rule keeper. The licentious person, the rule breaking person says, well, I won't tell you what to do. I'm not concerned about you at all. I'm only concerned about me. And much like the legalist, legalist underlying is, but don't tell me what to do. But don't tell me what to do. Neither one of those extremes is seeking to love their neighbor like Jesus. Instead, they're seeking to love their neighbor in a way that they have prescribed and they have determined. But for those of us who are Christ followers, our desire is to love others in the way and pattern of Jesus who was distinctly and other-oriented in his love. The setting is what changed the believer's actions in private versus in the presence of someone who's watching your way of life, wondering if your actions are what should describe a Christ follower's life. Now, this is not about hiding your sin or playing some man-pleasing game when you're in public or prescribing a life of hypocrisy. That's not the context of this passage at all. This is about how we glorify God in loving our neighbor, in deferring to them. What the believer eats does not matter. That he avoids giving unnecessary offense or that avoids causing another believer to stumble into sin, that deeply matters. Imagine a road, we'll call it Freedom in Christ Highway. And as you drive on this highway, you're you're moving toward, we'll call it a destination of glorifying God. That, that's the goal. That's the, what you've got your eyes set on. Imagine this, this highway has guardrails on each side of it. These guardrails help make sure you stay on this highway that's still directed toward the city of glorifying God, the destination, the, the goal. Love for neighbor helps serve as the 
guardrails or the rumble strips, if you will, on each side. That if you start to drift toward a love of self that is either legalistic or licentious, the rumble strips wake you up. They get you back on the road. On the left side of the road, you could call that guardrail the love of those yet to be saved. On the right side of the road, you could call that guardrail or rumble strips those within the church, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. See, our, our freedom in Christ is regulated by, it's guided by our love for others, both those within the family and those still outside the family of God. Christian liberty within the bounds of Christ-like love that leads us to shining a bright light upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, and not a bright light upon ourselves. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So the question is not how far can I get and still stay within boundaries. It's how can I live in a way that glorifies God? Not what I can get out of it, but how can I glorify Him? How can I bear, reveal that He bears weight on my life to those around me? Eating and drinking are mentioned here because that's the subjects of chapter 8, 9, and 10. But Paul widens it out. Whatever you do, do everything to reveal that the weight of God's glory is bearing weight in your life. It's shaping your life. It's transforming you like a piece of clay. As we look back on 1 Corinthians and the letter thus far, we see examples of how we can glorify God. For instance, we glorify God in how we pursue unity in the church and avoid division over petty and worldly values. We glorify God when we welcome and receive godly counsel and reject worldly wisdom. When we plant and water faithfully and trust God for the growth, we, when we build our lives in the life of the local church upon Jesus Christ as the foundation and the cornerstone, when we reject self-righteousness and spiritual arrogance and seek to humble ourselves before Jesus, we glorify God when we welcome and receive godly rebuke and correction in our lives, when we speak the truth and love to one another in the church, and when we are willing to pray and pray for and pursue and confront those entangled in, in sin in a spirit of gentleness, when we pursue reconciliation within the church and don't run to an ungodly court, a worldly court, to settle family matters. We glorify God when we avoid sexual immorality, when we enjoy the gift the Lord has given to us as husbands and wives, when we pursue contentment no matter our marital status, when we're self-sacrificing in our leadership and our life, when we flee from idolatry, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. This week before you, hundreds of opportunities await us in living that out. And we need the Spirit to lead us and guide us in how to do that. Verses 32 and 33. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also tried to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Paul includes three uh, groups of people who we are seeking to give no unnecessary offense to. Jews, Greeks or Gentiles, and then those within the church already. Those not yet saved and prone to legalism and law-keeping. Those not yet saved and prone to worldly idol worship. 
and those who are saved and yet still possibly still weak in the faith. Our God-glorifying pursuit is to live in a way that benefits the other, that builds them up, that doesn't lead them astray, but leads them toward our Savior Jesus so that more might be saved, so the spread of the gospel is not hindered by our way of life in any way. Does that seem like an impossible task? Sure does. Sure does. It's overwhelming, is it not? If we try and operate in our own strength, it is utterly impossible and deeply frustrating. We need the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. We need the Lord to speak to us through His Word. We need the wisdom of God in generous amounts. We need one another in the church to live on mission with, living out the one another's, loving one another and spurring one another on, forgiving one another. And brothers and sisters, the Lord who owns it all, who spoke the world into existence, has given us everything we need. We are not lacking in any way. We are not deficient in any way. And so we walk and live in prayerful dependence upon our triune God, the Father who delights over us as His children, the Son who has commissioned us and says, I will be with you and one day I will return for you. The Spirit who empowers us with resurrection power for daily life. And so verse 1 of chapter 11 is tied back to this section because in it we see Paul declaring, revealing his dependence, his trust, his allegiance, his devotion to Jesus in the midst of an impossible task that is impossible only when we rely upon ourselves but it's completely possible when we rely upon a god who is more than able to do more than we ask for or imagine verse 1 of chapter 11 imitate me as i also imitate christ paul himself is saying i'm seeking to imitate jesus i need jesus that when you look at me my goal is not that you'd see me but you'd see and hear of jesus and my devotion to him this is the call of a disciple maker's life. This is a call for moms and dads who are seeking to make disciples in the home. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul wrote this to a young believer named Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.12, he says to Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Brothers and sisters, we've been called to set an example for both believers and unbelievers. An example that ultimately points to Jesus and not to us. That, that glories in our Savior and not in us. An example that seeks the benefit and the good of those around us and not us. One author said this, The only way we can be moved out of our self-interest and self-centeredness and live lives of other-centered, self-giving love the only way we can do that is to see that we are the recipients, the recipients of God's other-oriented, other-centered, self-giving love displayed through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who did not seek his own benefit, but the benefit of others, the salvation of many. That verse points us forward. Paul's pointing us forward to 
Jesus Christ, not ultimately himself, but Jesus and the gospel. Jesus has been so good and gracious and extravagant in his love toward us. Loved ones, may his great love move us, compel us to love the people around us in the way of Christ, loving them well for the glory of God. Lord Jesus, thank you that while we were still sinners, wandering and straying from you, rebelling against you, while we were still enemies, you gave of yourself completely. You gave away your life for our lives. You set aside your freedoms for our freedom. You sought the good, not of yourself, but ours. And those yet to trust in you, Jesus, we need you, Lord, as we live by faith on a disciple-making mission in a world that is prone to idolatrous worship. That's our story too, Lord. We once sought to worship created things, and we need your grace, we need your power to remind us not to turn back to these lesser things. Thank you for supplying all that we need to live a disciple-maker's life. Give us wisdom, love, courage, boldness, and grace as we seek to glorify you in whatever we do seeking the benefit and the good of others, the salvation of many. Using your words from 1 Thessalonians 3, may you, Lord, increase and overflow our love for one another in the church and for everyone else around us. May you make our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our God and Father. May you help us to be found faithful as we await your return. We trust you wholeheartedly, Jesus, and we depend upon you. We pray this. We declare this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Paul writes this in Colossians 3. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, in which you were also called, in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. May we live that out well for his glory this week.